Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, your host, and this is our show where we talk about the headlines and key tech trends. And our topic today is protein folding. Given the news this week that Google DeepMind's Alpha Fold system outperformed everyone else in the 14th community-wide experiment on critical assessment of protein structure prediction, or CASP, which tracks progress and state-of-the-art on predictive techniques for protein folding. And this isn't just an academic challenge. It matters in practice because at a very high level, proteins support all life functions. Every living thing from bacteria to plants, animals to humans is defined and powered by proteins. Before I introduce our expert to help tease apart where we are on the long arc of innovation here and what's hype, what's real in this buzzy news, let me first quickly summarize some more key context, which is that proteins are complex molecular machines that assemble themselves into unique 3D forms. Figuring out those shapes and structures that they assemble into is important in helping determine their functions and therefore potential applications like drug discovery, among other things. As the saying goes, structure is function. But there's an astronomical number of possible structures for proteins, which is why being able to figure this out based on their amino acid sequences alone, whether experimentally or computationally, has been described as one of the grand challenges in biology. And in the CASP challenge this year, which takes place, by the way, every other year since 1994, it actually takes place over several months, but the results were just announced Monday, AlphaFold beat out 100 other teams from over 20 countries with, and this is the key news, accuracy comparable to laboratory experiments. The teams are basically given the amino acid sequences for a set of targets whose shapes have been determined experimentally already, but are not published publicly. And so the teams then try to predict the structures using computation. Okay, so that's the key context you need to know to follow the rest of this episode in the news. Now, let me quickly introduce our expert general partner, Vijay Pandey, also formerly professor of chemistry and structural biology and computer science, among other things, at Stanford. He also founded the Folding at Home Project, which pioneered using distributed computing, and this is way back in the day, over 20 years ago now, to solve the protein folding problem via simulations on what is now in aggregate the world's largest supercomputer. Welcome, Vijay. Hey, great to be here. I'm going to quickly quote some of the commentary. So the phrases that were bandied about were, this is a big deal. I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. That came from John Moult, who's a computational biologist and University of Maryland co-founder of CASP. It's a game changer, is what Andre Lupas, evolutionary biologist at the Max Planck Institute said, and he assessed the performance of different teams in CASP. It's a stunning advance, is what Venki Ramakrishnan said. He was obviously the Nobel Prize winner in chemistry in 2009. It's a breakthrough of the first order, certainly one of the most significant scientific results of my lifetime, which is what Mohammed Al-Qureshi, who's a computational biologist at Columbia and also a CAS participant, said. You know, I think to put those quotes in context, a lot of people, especially in the biology field, even told me that they thought that computational approaches would just never work. I also think a lot of people may have just been sick of people crying wolf, crying success, crying this is done. A lot of these quotes are reflecting that skepticism and maybe it is about whether people are glass half full or half empty. To me, this was inevitable. The Alpha Full team really accelerated this moment, dramatically so and impressively so. But if you look at what they did, there's no breakthrough, I think, in terms of any magic silver bullet that you could point to and be like, oh, this is an E equals MC squared moment. Like this is some Einstein-like realization of general relativity or something like that. 
But that's okay. You could argue in today's world, what's more impressive is the ability to take a hard problem and turn an engineering problem and grind it out and make it work. And for this very well-defined problem, I think they have done exceedingly well. Protein folding is such an important area. This is really, in the end, one part of protein folding. This is structure prediction, but there's typically three parts. There's predicting the structure from the sequence. There's predicting the sequence from the structure, which is protein design, which is a really interesting area. And then there's how does the protein fold, which is what folding at home was doing. In the early years of this, people were hoping that a physics-based approach where you sort of use the laws of physics, and this is kind of the way folding at home works, would be really useful for structure prediction. And I think what they were starting to realize is that that may be really important for understanding the folding mechanism, but just for predicting the structure itself, a sort of informatics, knowledge-based approach really would be more successful. And if you look at methods like Rosetta from David Baker's lab, they have been very successful and embraced this approach. And in many ways, AlphaFold is just taking that to the next step, where you're taking now a pure machine learning approach and actually taking people out of the loop in some ways, which is the beauty of modern AI. But then this is really going after one area, one specific part, replacing X-ray crystallography in principle. You mentioned techniques like X-ray crystallography. So X-ray crystallography has been around since the 50s. And then cryo-EM has been like the darling du jour of the last decade. And we, in fact, discussed in one of our early Journal Club episodes, our other sister show on BioEats World. And the key point to put in perspective is that those techniques took a lot of expensive equipment, a lot of time. So that's a key piece of context. It's really important to put this in the context of what has happened before. Let me step back. The fact that you could do crystallography at all is kind of amazing. And that what you do is you take this protein that's folded and you make like a little crystal, like a salt crystal is a crystal of NaNCl. This is a crystal of whole big proteins. And that crystalline ordering means you could shoot x-rays at it and the x-rays will diffract into a very clean pattern. From that pattern, you can guess back what was the protein that was creating that pattern. Kind of like making a finger puppet, you know, a bunny with your fingers to cast a shadow and then trying to figure out what your fingers were like from the shadow. The fact that you don't have to go through any of those things, which in time will seem very archaic, and you can just go straight from knowledge to structure is obviously paradigm changing. You helped orient where this fits, the significance of this fits, and then the bigger picture around it, which is super helpful. But let me just specifically describe the actual cask. Results are assessed by independent scientists, blind. So they don't know who is doing what result. Although it was funny because a little fun anecdote this year is that people were so shocked at how startlingly good Alpha Fold was that some even wondered if it was cheating. (laughs) I know, I thought that was really funny. And DeepMind has done twice. They did it in the challenge two years ago. And this is V2. And this year, they were able to determine the shape of around two-thirds of those proteins with accuracy comparable to laboratory experiments. And their accuracy on the other proteins was also high, but not as high at that level. Part of the motivation for even having this type of challenge is that the ability to make blind predictions is really important in terms of testing the progress of science engineering and that people can think they understand something, but until you really have this sort of cold, hard test, whether it's predicting whether a drug is going to work or predicting whether you can predict the protein structure, whatever you want to predict, doing a assessment where you don't know the answer ahead of time is really, really important. The history of CASP is really interesting. What CASP really, as a community, developed was really just thinking about prediction as being the critical assessment, but then also thinking about what are the metrics to be able to know whether we've crossed this finish line. 
The reason why everyone's excited is that if you look at performance over AlphaFold 1 to 2 over the last two years, there's been a huge jump. And we're getting to the point now where this area of prediction and computation can basically be on par with experiments. This is the hallmark of where all of this has now transitioned from talking about science and physics and biology to really realizing that this is an engineering problem and that we should expect in two years a commensurate similarly. That's sort of what you expect from engineering. You expect gradual iterative improvement compounding year over year and going from basically from nothing to dominating in just a few years. I think that's the thread to be pulling on. Well, let's go pull deeper on that. So you mentioned the goal was to bring more rigor to the field. And that was super important, especially because in the early days, there was a lot of hype and failed hopes and expectations. The key metric, the way that they are measuring the accuracy of those predictions is GDT or the Global Distance Test. It's a score range of zero to 100 and 90 is considered roughly on par with experimental. And this year's AlphaFold system achieved a median score of 92.4 overall across all targets and others this year achieved roughly 75. So they were basically 25 higher than the next best. And last year, they were only ahead by like a sixth lead or something like that. You pointed out the key chart of previous years of progress. If you look at 1994, which is when they started, it was like roughly 20. And then you look at 2016, the GDT was 40 for the hardest proteins. And this year, you're looking at 87 for the hardest proteins. So that's quite an amazing accomplishment in a short amount of time. Do you want to quickly break down why the GDT matters? Yeah, I mean, we could go into details of GDT. It's largely just like, how much of the protein did you get right? What's interesting is that previous metrics were very common sense metrics in the field, but people found ways to sort of game them. Like in previous metrics, people found if you shrink your proteins to be unrealistic, you do a little better on the older metrics. And if you're not careful about that, all these loopholes will come up, even when human optimized, but especially when computer optimized. So the big advance about GDT was that it was finally a metric that I think captures really what we would call is the right structure. I would just add, the key thing is that this is typically for small parts of a protein. You can't just throw anything in here. There's a whole bunch of caveats and asterisks. Well, I'm really glad you brought up those caveats and asterisks. Let's talk about some of those because the point of this show is to tease apart what's hype, what's real. Can you explain like at a very high level the difference between single domains versus protein complexes and why that matters? So this asterisk is more about just sort of drawing a line for where we are now and what needs to be done in the future, but it does not diminish in any way sort of where this milestone has reached. In the details, proteins are pretty modular. Each of these modules is called a domain, and a, a typical protein often has multiple domains. So CASP has always been to predict single domains. Now, if you can predict single domains, you can imagine building a predictor for multiple domain proteins. The simplest example is that you just predict each domain individually and then try to clean up for where they might interact. Maybe to make an analogy, you can think of like a car. You know, a car has a bunch of parts. It has a wheel, it has a roof, it has a steering wheel, you know, an engine or a bunch of different parts. And a domain of a protein is like one of those parts. But a full complex will put these parts together. And so here, the ability to predict each of the individual domains is really important. But, you know, when you put these things together, proteins actually can change shape and refold or change in the presence of other proteins. So there's work left to be done. But before you try to do the whole car, you want to start with seeing if we can do individual parts. And does this mean that now drug design will be revolutionized and that all these things that we couldn't do, now we could do? That's not the right way to think about it. Structure prediction is really important. but 
Typically, it's not but for our ability to predict structures that we could design drugs. There's a lot of other things that are holding us back, and this is not really the key limiting part of it. Oh, interesting. What is the limiting thing? What are people missing here? There's often like a misunderstanding. The same thing happened when the human genome was solved. People were claiming that now we could solve all diseases because we have the genome. So it's not true that you can solve all diseases, but it's really critically useful information that brings us one step forward. And the main things that I think people have to realize is where this sits in how structure prediction is used and how structures are used. It's a key part of how biology is done, whether we're talking about drug design or protein engineering. But it's not that just solving this part solves everything. In terms of making sure a drug works, knowing which protein you want to target is sometimes the biggest problem. So if you have the structure of the wrong thing, that's not going to help. And then, okay, so let's say you can target it, but it turns out that proteins, you know, not just fold, but they can go through more subtle conformational changes. So something that looks like one shape can change when it's either next to another protein or when a drug comes. And so being able to understand this so-called allosteric conformational change, that's actually critically important for many drugs. And that's something that this approach isn't really set up to do. That's something where folding home other approaches are, at least for the moment, maybe better suited. But then even beyond does the drug hit the protein, then there's all these other challenges of will this drug be toxic and what will be the side effects? And so if you look at the full arc of drug design, this is part, but it's not that this is the one thing that's holding back our ability to rationally design drugs. To carry your analogy even further, it's one thing to know the part of the car, to even know the car itself, but there's an entire factory of things around it. Absolutely. And to abuse the analogy, like if a car is not working, understanding the parts is good, but like there's going to be a lot of other things, a lot of information you need to know to know how to fix it. Some of the other things that people commented on, and again, to just tease apart more of what's hype, what's real in the news specifically, some people pointed out that the predictions were poor matches to experimental structures determined by nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. There's three primary methods that people use to identify structures, crystallography, cryo-EM, and NMR. And each one of them has different strengths and weaknesses. NMR actually is strongest for being able to understand sort of the parts that are unstructured or floppy. It's a bit of an oversimplification to think that all proteins are like really rigid rocks, that once they hit that folded shape, that they don't change or they don't move. And in fact, we know that that motion and change is often important for function and important for understanding drug design and disease. So I think this is one of the asterisks of which, you know, there's many future next steps to do. Can we talk about some of the speed and accuracy trade-offs and where it does and doesn't matter? Because one of the things that one of the participants in the CAF Challenge this year mentioned is that the alpha fold technique is slower than the recurrent networks. I think he had an RGN type of network, which takes seconds versus days. And he argued that sometimes speed is more important than accuracy. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways to look at this. One is in terms of speed and accuracy today versus your alternative. Sometimes speed is really important. I don't think you need seconds versus minutes. I don't think that's that material. Seconds versus years is definitely material. I think some of this comparisons is a little bit of red herring because the real question in my mind is that are you on a Moore's-like curve or are you on sort of a more traditional curve? So X-ray crystallography is probably not going to get much faster than it is now. 
CryoEM actually has a large compute component to it and is getting pretty easy to do. Anything that's on a pure compute platform means that in 10 years, it could be, you know, a thousand times faster. If it takes, you know, 100 days, it'll be an hour. So I think the really important thing about speed is, especially for the future, is whether this is on sort of a Moore's Law-like platform or not. Okay, so now let's really quickly talk about what specifically DeepMind's AlphaFold does Mm -hmm. and did. So, you know, just at a super high level to summarize the previous version, which beat the other computational methods, but not the labs, it was basically a convolutional neural network. And the latest version that was used at CAS14 and that beat everyone is what they've described as an attention-based neural network. And I don't know what that is, but John Jumper, who heads up the AlphaFold team at DeepMind, he describes the technique that they use as akin to assembling a jigsaw puzzle because it pieces together local chunks first before fitting these into the whole. So we're in such an interesting age of AI, and typically AI really means now deep neural networks. And the thing about deep neural networks is there's lots of different types of layers and lots of different ways you can architect them. The first generation of DNNs in biology typically took exactly the same architecture that was successful in other areas, like images. And you said, well, okay, a convolutional neural net is great for images because of translational invariance. That's what the convolution part's really useful for. Well, sequences has that translational invariance. I don't care where in the image this thing is. I don't care where in the protein sequence this is. I'm going to use a CNN for protein sequences. That worked really well. And so this borrowing of architectures, whether it be a CNN or LSTM or whatever, that I think is the first generation. The next generation is saying, well, I'm not going to leave it to the computer scientists to architect a neural network for their other application, and I just see if I can make it work for biology. I'm going to actually think now from a clean sheet of paper, how could we architect a neural net for this specific biology problem? And that's, I think, the advance that we're seeing here. If you think about it, you can draw deep similarities between ImageNet, a computer science project from Feifei Lee's lab at Stanford, where she created a benchmark for knowing whether you could predict images to CASP. By creating ImageNet, you sort of created a contest or you created a benchmark, went at it, and you would see people getting progressively better and better and better and new architectures and new tricks and creativity coming out. CASP, I think, is playing an analogous role. What we're seeing now is computer scientists taking the similar approaches where let's be creative and come up with new architectures, new computer science to apply to this problem. And I think that would be the golden age of AI and biology where we're not sort of the afterthought, but where the best computer scientists are applying their creativity to biology problems directly. I love that, Vijay. One of the things that really struck me is that the publicly available data set consists of 170,000 protein structures, but there are over 200 million proteins discovered across life forms. What do you think is the role of these public data sets? The other world, like enterprise, so much of it is about proprietary data sets. I'm just like very curious for how this is going to play on bio. Yeah, so pharma has proprietary structural information. When they're going after a particular protein involved in a disease, they may do hundreds, maybe thousands of crystal structures, because now that can be done in a high-throughput fashion. And so there are private data sets that are not covering all of biology, but maybe covering laser-focused full coverage of a very specific area relevant for disease. Where this also gets interesting now is to leverage these methods where you start with the public data sets, which are going to be important for background training, and then you augment them with private data sets. And I suspect for those areas that you could do way better 
than what AlphaFold 2 has been doing, where basically experiments become confirmatory and you can sort of sample things much, much more quickly computationally. And then the other thing is just, you know, obviously a condition of doing CASP is that it's in the spirit of open science. All the groups have to reveal enough details about their methods for other groups to recreate it. And most of the teams that entered are universities and academic labs. But Microsoft and Tencent also entered this year, which is also interesting. So the question I have for you is, what are some of the now practical considerations for companies, including big companies, startups here? We now see that applying an engineering tech-like team, a tech-like approach, something common in a tech company like you would see at a Google or a Facebook, to this problem was one of the critical elements for pushing it to the next step. I think it's interesting that this is coming out of deep mind, and to have Microsoft and Tencent and others involved, I think, sort of represents that shift. Where I think this is interesting for companies, though, is that A lot of companies are turning to biopharma and health as an interesting new direction to be working in and tackling. For big companies, this is another key sign that bioengineering is here and that it should be on par with how we think about chemical engineering and how chemical engineering has changed the world over the last 50 years. The change over the next 50 years will come from bioengineering. And if you want to be part of the change, big companies need to be able to build up efforts in this. Basically, no longer Intel inside, but bio inside. Absolutely. So how should builders be thinking about this? Is it something they can go out and like say, oh, I'm going to just go replicate, you know, AlphaFold's techniques and do this? Is it like plug and play? Is there an API? Like, should they even be thinking about this? How should they be thinking about it? It's interesting because you can ask, is this TensorFlow or is this GPT-3? I was thinking of exactly that when I asked you that question. Yeah, so TensorFlow is Google's tool for doing deep neural networks. A lot of people use PyTorch's, Facebook's open source software. So many people build on top of it. My lab at Stanford built on top of each. Making that open source has really pushed things forward. GPT-3 has aspects that are open, but there's millions and millions of dollars where the compute went into the training. And that may be the biggest sort of barrier for a startup because a startup's not going to spend $3 million to train a single model. Maybe they have like $5 million of seed funding that you can't burn it all on just that part. So that's going to be the question. Now, again, compute is moving so quickly that what's $3 million now will relatively soon be $300,000 and $30,000 and $3,000 and so on. So again, that's a temporary issue. With that said, though, if AlphaFold releases, let's say, a trained model, then people can build upon that really easily. They may not be able to improve it, but they could at least use it. And that would be a natural place for startups, just like TensorFlow is a natural place for startups. By the way, I found it interesting that this was trained on only the equivalent of 100 to 200 GPUs, which seems so small compared to anything else. So often you might use a lot of GPUs if you want to train a lot of different model architectures in parallel. It may be that they had the model architecture and that it wasn't that much data. My gut feeling is that the protein data is way smaller to train from than, say, the corpus that GPT-3 was trained from. Which is the entire internet. (laughs) And that's going to be the big challenge for biology, is that for images or for text, humanity has created so much data for us to learn from. And biology right now still is in partially image generation, the data generation stage. And so the other areas for startups that get interesting is that the next breed of startups will not just be AI experts, but data generation experts. And combining the two may be the sort of the secret sauce. Okay. People have said it'll change medicine, it'll change research, it'll change bioengineering, it'll change everything. AlphaFold and DeepMind specifically, they said that they plan to study 
leishmaniasis, mm-hmm. sleeping sickness, malaria, basically all tropical diseases caused by parasites because they're linked to lots of unknown protein structures. Can you say more about that? Frankly, getting a protein structure in many cases is pretty straightforward. And so where this is interesting is going after the places experiment can't go after. So whether we're talking about crystallography or NMR or whatever, you could maybe in a rough analogy, imagine that's like having a microscope where you could look at something that you can't see with the naked eye. But now with these computational approaches, you could maybe look at things that these previous microscopes couldn't. And so going after things that experiments couldn't do makes a lot of sense. That's something where there would be the biggest win. What are the applications? You mentioned drug discovery already, but even beyond that. Yeah, so drug discovery is an obvious part, and we talked about where it plays a role. It's not by no means the whole thing limiting part. I think another area is protein design. And the thinking goes like this, is that if you could go from sequence to structure computationally, then you can test various designs. Kind of like, you know, imagining like before you build the bridge, you could run it in CAD software, knowing the laws of physics. And CAD software could tell you like, where are the weak parts of this bridge? Will it work? Will it not? That ability to make a prediction from sequence to structure means that we can now iteratively go through lots of sequences and see, oh, will this fold? Alpha fold-like technology in everybody's hands means now that you maybe don't have to do as many experiments experiments become confirmatory and still going to be important to do the experiments to confirm, but that you could have a much tighter design cycle. Maybe that's designing antibodies. Maybe it's designing proteins that have new function. Getting to function is a longer discussion and a trickier part because a lot of function deals with quantum mechanics and motion and things that are not inside AlphaFold. But I think that's the direction. You know, just when we think about applications, I think there's just so much to do with proteins beyond drug design. There's no reason why this has to be limited to proteins. You could imagine applying these types of approaches to nucleic acids, to protein nucleic acid complexes. Some of the most interesting things are combinations of those, uh, the ribosome being one of my personal favorites. So this is, again, like the beginning. One last question for you. For training the next batch of molecular biologists. One of the things that I thought was so fascinating is the head of the Max Planck Institute argued that this not only empowers a new generation of molecular biologists to ask more advanced questions, to your point about it being exploratory, but that, quote, it's going to require more thinking and less pipetting. One of my favorite sort of philosophical comments about the future is that biology is going to look more like programming than pipetting. Yep. If you look at lab benches today versus 50 years ago, it's still people in white coats, maybe with some different boxes on the top of the benches. So much of biology has been about grinding out the experiments, and experiments were difficult and messy and unclean. Going from this artisanal approach where everything is bespoke, bespoke, done by hand, to something run through by machines is going to, I think, could be critical to solving the reproducibility crisis and also critical to driving the data that we need for ML. It's literally equivalent to the industrial revolution. The most important thing that it frees us up to is asking the most important questions. Not what can you do, but what should you do? So now let's say you could predict any protein structure from its sequence. Let's just say that's a given. How could you change biology, change the course of human health? What are the biggest things you could do with it? That's what I'd like the next generation of students to be thinking about. All right, Vijay, bottom line it for me. So this is a a big deal, and nothing ever is a panacea for drug design or for any of these things. This is just not how science engineering works. But a huge bit of congratulations for the AlphaFold team. You know, the winning part isn't alone. It's the fact that now 
This technology really looks like it's matured where it can be used in production aspects and that we can see people coming together to realize the power of tech and engineering approaches in biology. Imagine like we're sitting in 2040 and we're looking back in time. I think what we're going to see is this next 20 years to be maybe akin to the way the internet has evolved. You know, 20 years ago, people weren't buying dog food on the internet and were making fun of pets.com. 20 years later, you buy almost everything on the internet. We'll get to the point where now you wouldn't imagine doing it any other way. When we look back at this, we're going to see that this was the moment, maybe not necessarily purely a scientific discovery moment, but almost maybe more like a Woodstock moment. I'm excited to get more people to come in and join the party. Thank you so much for joining this episode of 16 Minutes, VJ. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. 